Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we want to talk about how to respond to crises and the power inherent in the very idea of a crisis. And I've got a very special guest to talk about three great crises which are going to be unfolding over the next decade further health emergencies, transformative climate change, as well as the next technological revolution. What can we learn from the past? How can we use these coming crises not only to survive, but but even to thrive in the world of the future? And our guest who's going to help us make sense of all of these issues is Ian Bremer. He is president and founder of the Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's a foreign affairs columnist and editor at at large at Time magazine, as well as a best-selling author. And his latest book is, in fact, rather appropriately called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. And it's just debuted on the European market. Ian, thanks so much for joining. Mark, it's good to be with you doing this. So why don't we we start, obviously, you packing some quite big themes, and we've only got 30 minutes to talk about it. So let's just go right into it. Can you tell us how and why you pick these three crises, the health emergencies, climate change and the te- technological revolution as the, as the three biggies that you think we need to, to get our head around? Well, they're global. Um, they're massive. Uh, the pandemic we've been living with for the last two plus years and is still with us. Climate change, by far the biggest global crisis that is and has been in front of us for decades now, and we're all grappling with it. And disruptive technologies, one that is, I think, even perhaps the most existential of the global crises, but a little bit ahead of us, not quite on everyone's screen yet, really deserves to be. It's the call to action. And of course, the other thing I should say is that the book had to go to press on February 26th, which was two days after the Russians invaded Ukraine. If it had been a couple months later, there would have been four crises, and I absolutely would have spoken of the new Cold War with aspects of hot war with the Russians. As it was, I was able to you know, throw an addendum in that talked about it, because that's really relevant to the book, too. So you really think that that's on a, the same level as these other three quite structural crises that we're talking about, or is it just the thing that's in the news at the moment? It's a little bit of both. I mean, in the sense that I do believe that the decision of the Russians to invade Ukraine has not only ended the peace dividend in Europe, but will actually permanently decouple Russia from the advanced industrial economies, does create a new Cold War with elements of hot war with the uh, Europeans and with NATO more broadly, and something we're going to be living with as a consequence for, um, for a generation or more. So I like to to come back to these big geopolitical questions, uh, Russia, but also China later on. But maybe we can just start with these these three um, threats that you talked about. And as you discuss them, you come up with this notion of the the Goldilocks crisis. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, the Goldilocks crisis is sort of the equivalent um, of a flow state for an individual, but at the geopolitical level. I mean, we all know that um, if, if you or I were playing basketball 
um, and it was against a toddler, we wouldn't bother trying. And if it's against LeBron, uh, we're not going to give it our best because we're just going to get destroyed. What we want is someone who's capable of challenging us to give our best and really make us function at that level. Um, that's kind of the reality of how a crisis can lead us to respond geopolitically. That I mean, I, we can point to crises that I didn't write about in this book that are pretty significant, but they don't rise to the level of forcing us out of our comfort zone. The gun violence crisis in the United States is like that. The crack cocaine crisis in the 80s and 90s, a lot of performative responses, a lot of thoughts and prayers, but not big enough to force policy leaders to make uncomfortable choices. Um, and, and also, you don't want a crisis that's so big that you just fail, that your institutions break, World War I, for example. Um, you really want a crisis um, that is a Goldilocks crisis. And by the way, um, I would argue that the pandemic had aspects of a Goldilocks crisis in the beginning and then became too small. I think climate change today is a Goldilocks crisis. I think Russia-Ukraine in many ways is a Goldilocks crisis. And I hope like hell that disruptive technologies are uh, become a Goldilocks crisis because otherwise we're in very big trouble. So in the book, you kind of talk about some of the strategies you can use to tackle these crises. And you kind of talk about some of the elements which you need for that compromise, cooperation, coordination. Can you both introduce why those are kind of three central things that you need and then maybe go through some of the possible ideas which could hopefully be within our grasp if these are Goldilocks crises. Well, I talked about size. So one of the things that you have to have is it has to you know, be of a scale that it matters and you can handle it. I think that there are two other aspects of crises that make it much more likely that we're going to respond effectively. One is the ability of all or a preponderance of the players that matter to define the crisis in the same way. If you can't agree on what the crisis is, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to respond to it. One of the reasons why when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was such an effective response in the near term is because everyone in NATO, with the exception of like Tucker Carlson and Noam Chomsky, basically thought Putin was a bad, bad man. And that something needed to be done to respond. And furthermore, the farther the crisis went along, the more your, your priors were being confirmed, the more you realized, wow, these Ukrainians are really courageous. Wow, these, these Russians are committing all these war crimes. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are being shipped into filtration camps, millions of refugees. The longer it goes, the more you realize you have to do something. Climate change is like that. It wasn't 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was mostly activists trying to convince people it mattered and the average policymaker pretending it was a big deal but not willing to do anything. Today, it's not about hugging trees and saving whales. It's about all of our countries, all of our backyards. It's about extraordinary amounts of extreme temperatures and floods and droughts that are affecting people that we know on a daily basis. And furthermore, the farther it goes, the more we all recognize it's a big problem we need to do something about. So there's only one side of the issue to be on, and our priors are getting more confirmed every day. And what that means is that even if the United States and China were the two largest carbon emitters in the world, we don't like each other, we don't trust each other, but we both recognize this is a very serious priority. And so the Americans start looking at the Chinese investing more and more 
in solar and in wind and in nuclear. And we say, wait a second, we don't want those guys to dominate, become the new energy superpower and be in charge of post-carbon energy. We need to do that. So even though we don't have collaboration or cooperation between the US and China, we actually have a level of virtuous competition that moves us in the same direction. And I think that when crises have those elements, those aspects, you're much more likely to respond successfully. Uh, the pandemic had a lot of that, at least in the developed world in the early days, um, but lost it quickly. Remember, Dr. Fauci was lionized in the first few months, and there was a massive outpouring of support to make sure there was enough economic help, that you had a V-shaped recovery and not much worse. But in relatively short order, you had vaccines, and then suddenly the pandemic got much more politicized. It was much easier for political actors to actually say, no, more important are taking advantage of what we see as political opportunities to put forward our own agendas and benefit our ambitions. Isn't that the challenge with all of your crises, though, whether it's Ukraine, climate change or technology, that there the effects, the negative effects are very asymmetrical the interests of different players are quite different. So there is a, a tendency not to focus on our common survival, but the relative performance of one's own country versus others. So the US and, and China, you know, are both gaming the climate negotiations. You know, there is, as you say, there's a virtuous competition on the one hand, but in terms of cooperative things, there's not very much there it's very difficult to see how US and Chinese interests are aligned on, on Ukraine, for example. And even on technology, that seems to be like the area where the China, China and the US are competing in the most brutal way. Well, again, I mean, the fact that you have competition does not mean that you can't use a crisis to create new institutions that will allow people to respond. It depends on the nature of the crisis. So, I mean, climate is the one that is most obvious that as the crisis gets bigger, that all sorts of actors that don't necessarily agree with each other are doing an enormous amount that makes that should make us much more optimistic about the ability to effectively respond. And I'm talking about the European Union, the Americans, the Chinese. I'm talking about banks and NGOs. I'm talking about big corporations. I mean, everyone is increasingly rowing in the same direction and spending so much money that you have, you know, coal. Um, is, is now more expensive than solar at scale. And 10 years ago, no one would have expected that. The fact that in a world of disinformation um, and fake news, that 195 countries now agree that there is climate change of 1.2 degrees centigrade and that it's caused by humanity and not by natural cycles, that's an extraordinary place to be. We were not there 10 years ago. We weren't there 20 years ago. We now are. So, I mean, clearly the world is moving in a much stronger direction to effectively respond to climate change and to build the institutions that will define a post-carbon global energy environment that I, I think a majority of the world's energy is going to come from non-carbon sources within one generation by 2045. That's astonishing in a G0 world. But you're right that, of course, the fact that we are living in a geopolitical recession, in a world where there isn't trust and alignment inside the United States or between the US and China, so the most powerful country in the world is massively politically dysfunctional, 
the most important geopolitical relationship in the world, has zero trust. Those are pretty significant bars that need to be cleared in the response to any crisis to have a success. And it makes it harder. If we just stick with the climate crisis, in some ways, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years, there was a consensus that we needed to have a global solution, that it should be binding, and that scientists should be the ones driving the agenda. And this was kind of enshrined in in various different treaties, not least the Kyoto Protocol, which was, you know, the archetype of that sort of approach. Where we're at now, post-Paris, is is very different. Everyone kind of marks their own homework. They do whatever it is that they want to do. There's not very much global about it. And the idea that anything should be binding is, is completely politically impossible. Yet you're saying in spite of that, we seem to be developing a lot of technologies which are, are cheap and widely available. It's almost um, happening in spite of what we thought we needed to do to, to solve it. Yeah, what we're seeing is increasingly a move to post-Westphalian solutions. I mean, President Trump comes in in 2017. He withdraws the United States from the Paris Climate Accord as one of the first decisions he makes as president. And it doesn't matter at all to America's carbon trajectory because Michael Bloomberg and California and Texas and all these CEOs and all these bankers are just moving faster and faster in that direction. So it's so interesting. It's not the traditional powers that are actually moving the needle on this issue. In the book, you talk about some of the, the kind of ideas of, of, of how one could move forward, whether it's a sort of, well, I mean, on climate, you talk about binding agreements on, on carbon emissions, a green Marshall Plan. You have some ideas, of, you know, the global COVAX on, on the health issue, World Data Organization. Do you want to talk a bit about, about some of those things? Because are those, in your mind, or those all kind of post-Westphalian different kinds of institutions which can work in a world where there's no trust between governments? Or do you think it's important to try and reestablish some trust between governments and that that is a possible goal for us? I mean, of course you want to try. But I mean, I think what's clear is that in all of these environments, the responses and the institutional framework is going to be much more multi-stakeholder. So, I mean, in a sense... A lot of the hard lifting on climate change is already being done. And we're now we're no longer looking at the potential for four or five or six degrees of global warming before we reach net zero, something that a lot of climate activists were raising the alarms about even five years ago, certainly 10 or 20. But there is an enormous gap between 1.5 and 2.5. It's, I mean, hundreds of trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of lives. And the difference between 1.5 and 2.5 is really a Green Marshall Plan. I mean, very simply put, Mark, it's whether or not we decide that Indians are human beings. And, you know, at some level, your argument, your pushback to me is, no, we don't have that level of trust. We don't care enough about other human beings on the planet. I probably agree with you. And as a consequence, if you made me bet I think we're going to end up landing closer to 2.2, 2.3, and not 1.5. And if you want to say, well, that's a failure, I'll accept that. But the frame of the book is that we have been heading on this fragmentation of globalization in this G0 world. I mean, my last four books have all described an unwind of the global order. And this book is meant to look at 
how the seeds of the next global order are being sown in these global crises for good and for bad. And the one that we haven't gotten to yet, and you said, do I want to talk about the World Data Organization? I'll take a step back from that for a second. These issues of disruptive technologies. In the Cold War, uh, we didn't trust the Soviets at all, but we recognized that we should really prevent nuclear weapons technology from proliferating. And we worked on that uh, with our allies and with the Soviets. And over 80 years, we did a reasonable job. And so you don't have terrorist organizations with nukes today. And a lot of people, I think, 50, 60, 70 years ago would have thought that would be a problem. We now have existentially threatening disruptive technologies in the 21st century that the Americans and Chinese are taking the lead in developing. And we don't have, we haven't remotely started to have a conversation with each other on how to prevent those technologies from being proliferated. And we desperately need that. So how can we go about doing that? Well, I think, as I said on climate change, the way you start is defining the problem. So the first thing I would do would be to put together an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. I mean, if we can get 195 countries together to define the challenge on climate, we should be able to get 195 countries together to define the challenge on disruptive technologies. Which are the technologies that are most dangerous? Which are those that we don't have defenses and couldn't develop defenses if we wanted to? Who, who are the core actors that actually affect the development and the transmission of each of those things? We could do that. If the world wanted to, in the next two to three years, we could easily put together an IPAI that could collectively define the problem. And, I, and maybe that sounds boring, but I'm an analyst. I really believe the way you start is by defining the problem. At the moment, the sort of core problem in Beijing and in Washington is how do we make sure that the Americans uh, don't overtake, don't kind of overtake us if you're in China and stay ahead of us and that the Chinese don't catch up with us. Uh, this is a different kind of problem from what you're talking about. It's not about the survival of the species. It's more about zero-sum competition. No, and, and when the um, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change was put together, that wasn't the core problem for those governments either. The Americans and Chinese weren't paying enough attention to it. But if, if we wait um, until it becomes a core problem for the Americans and Chinese and everybody else, it's probably too late. Because unlike nuclear weapons, these things are going to develop much faster. They're core technologies that are much more dangerous and much more easily proliferated. I honestly believe that this, the, er, the first step is an easy step. I mean, you probably noticed that the Secretary General of the UN is on the back cover of the book. I've spoken with him at great length about this issue, and he's completely committed to it. He thinks it's something that we actually need. And I know that the heads of a lot of the big tech companies, like Microsoft and Google, really believe this is something that's important as well. So, I mean, I think the ability to set up a process, relatively limited resources, to identify the parameters of the problem, that's not a heavy lift. The next thing you would need to do is prioritize which of those chapters, if you will, you actually take action on. As you know, with climate change, you've got deforestation, you've got biodiversity, you've got methane in the atmosphere, you've got carbon, and all of those are different actors with different metrics that are doing different things. And I think you would need to then figure out which of these aspects 
of massively proliferation, proliferating dangerous technologies, you feel like you could actually take a bite out of, and who are the actors that could make a difference on them? And then you'd create the equivalent of net zero commitments on, on your net zero um, disruptive technology proliferation. Um, and some you could have a biotech group, you can have a disruptive, uh, a lethal autonomous dro drones group, a quantum computing group. And, and those are much smaller groups that would have much more expertise and much more alignment in bringing about the kind of outcomes that we need. Uh, but again, I mean, of the crises I talk about in this book, this is the one that is, in a sense, the future looking, the one that's not quite as in front of us on our screen yet, but it's going to, it's going, it's coming very soon to a theater near you. So I want to end by talking about Europe and where it fits in that, because we are, you know, a lot of our listeners are interested in that. But maybe before that, can you could just talk a bit about the fact that we are in a sort of era of poly crises, you know, there's not just one of these things going on at the same time. The fourth one, which happened after you'd finished the book, this hot, cold war, which you were talking about, obviously makes it much harder for us to work together across different areas. And many people are seeing, you know, what's happening between the West and Russia as a prelude to a much bigger hot slash cold war with China in the future. If that does happen, presumably it makes it, you know, exponentially harder to think how, about how the great powers can work together on these other areas. So how, how do these things coexist with each other? And also, you know, if we are in this kind of period where great power competition is reshaping how globalization works, that presumably also changes the roles of, of some of these non-state actors. You know, you can talk about being a global company as much as you like, but when sanctions start emerging in the way of the remote, there's a big difference between a global company that happens to be based in New York and one that happens to be based in Moscow or in Beijing. Well, there there are no global companies really based in Moscow, and that was true before the war, and it's true after the war. Uh, and let's remember that the Russian economy is, what was the 11th largest in the world, and uh, that number's shrinking fast. So it's a real problem that we're decoupling them from the West, and it's their fault, of course, but uh, it's not the same as the US-China Cold War. I want to be clear. I mean, I say at the opening of this book that the United States is politically dysfunctional and we're not going to fix that in the next 10 years, and that U.S.-China is also lacking trust. We're not going to fix that in the next 10 years. But we also are not going to end globalization in 10 years. There is an enormous amount of economic interdependence between the U.S. and China, Europe and China, that creates guardrails that prevents us from having a Cold War in the same way that the only guardrails we had with the Soviets was nuclear mutually assured destruction. That stopped us from getting involved in a hot war, but everything else was plausible. So actually, the, the confines of the global order that we're working in going forward in many ways is more conducive to responding to global crises than the confines that we had back in the days of the Cold War with the Soviets. And I think we should appreciate that. But there's no question that the fact, um, I mean, as I said at the opening of the book, we are going to cooperate together. There is going to be, in response to these poly crises, an effort by the major powers of the world, state and non-state, to work together. The only question is, are we going to do enough at scale and quickly that will be effective? 
That 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 is the fundamental question, and it is made harder by the challenges that you raise. So let's end with with the question of Europe. How does Europe fit into this world of, of poly crises that you've been describing, both as a as a victim, as uh, an actor? Um, and maybe as part of a solution, if uh, if you think that it can be. Well, look, if you look at disruptive technologies, you recognize that to the extent that we have any effective regulation around the world in rule of law and how we should deal with disruptive technologies, it's largely coming from Europe. And that the Americans are indeed starting to model a lot of the national level and state level legislation on the basis of what's coming out of Brussels. Um, the world leader in responding to climate has been the Europeans so far. Um, at a supranational level, there's no question. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine only has made that stronger. Um, the uh, pandemic made the United States weaker. There's more red versus blue dysfunction. The pandemic made the EU stronger politically. Um, there was a massive redistribution of wealth from wealthy to poorer countries in Europe. And also the EU took on at a European level the acquisition and distribution of vaccines, a power that they didn't have before the pandemic hit. Now, none of this is to say that the Europeans are suddenly going to lead the world in terms of economic growth, but in a global, in a geopolitical recession, where rule of law is becoming more fragmented, where there are more crises in, 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 around us that are buffeting us, governance is uh, at a premium, and the Europeans actually possess the strongest and most durable existing model of supranational governance. And so I would argue that this book, I mean, I know it's being written by an American, but this is actually a much more European favorable book in terms of the kinds of solutions that you expect. On the global order, the EU plays a much bigger role in the future of this book than it would from almost any other geopolitical book that would come out of the United States right now. Amen to that. We're running out of time on this podcast, but there's one thing left to do, and that's our bookshelf segment. Obviously, every self-respecting person will have the power of crises on their bookshelves. But what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Ian? I'll tell you a book that I just finished that I loved. It's called The Body Scout uh, by Lincoln Michelle. And uh, it's it's science fiction, but it is the most interesting and just, just impossible to put down uh, book that I've read about where biotechnology advances are heading in a society that is deeply, deeply stratified both inside the United States and globally, and also one that is post-Westphalian. And I find that, uh, I always find books like that really interesting, forcing you to, uh, to start opening your mind to possibilities. Fantastic. We'll put links to all the publications we mentioned on our website, uh, ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, then do head to whatever platform you've used to, to listen to us on now. Take out a subscription while you're there. If you want to give us a positive review and a five-star rating, that would be very helpful because it will bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Ian Bremer and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Chris Eichberger. Mm-hmm.